0: 21 and 22, as we look at uh, persevering for Christ, persevering for Christ, we're not going to read all of the text. we're going going to start in chapter 21, verse 17, but before we read, uh, join me in praying. Our Father in heaven, as we open your word now, we pray that you would speak to us by it, and God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would Give us insight and speak to us so that we can apply your word to our lives. And now, Lord, I pray that you would anoint our ears, anoint my lips. And, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Chapter 21, verse 17, and we'll read through verse 40. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you, teach, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Then Paul took men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help this man. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul, had been brought in, that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, the word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took the soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of of the people followed, crying out away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia a city i mean a citizen of no obscure city i beg you permit me to speak to the people and when he had given him permission paul standing on the steps motioned with his hand to the people and when there was a great hush he addressed them in the hebrew language saying brothers and fathers hear the defense that i now make before you from verse 2 through 21 of chapter 22 we have the story of Paul's Damascus Road conversion, which we have already looked at in some detail. So we won't reread it this morning. But I wanted to begin where we did in verse 17, because it shows Paul arriving in Jerusalem. From verses 1 through 16, we simply have the voyage of Paul heading there. Well, the title of the message this morning is Persevering for Christ... And what we see from Paul is we see a boldness in his life. Paul is bold for Christ. On April 14, 1521, Martin Luther was on his way to the Diet of Worms. The emperor had forbidden the sale of all the reformers' books and ordered them to be seized. Well, Luther's devoted friend and confidant, George Spalatin, had sent word through a special messenger for Luther not to come to Worms, Worms lest he suffer the same fate as John Huss. Luther comforted his fearful friends by saying, Though Huss was burned, the truth was not burned, and Christ still lives. Well, on April 16th, just two days later, Luther entered Worms, and more than 2,000 people were present to observe his entrance. On the following day at 4 o'clock, Luther stood before Charles, heir of the long line of Catholic sovereigns, of Maximilian the Romantic, of Ferdinand the Catholic, of Isabella the Orthodox, and the Holy Roman Emperor, a sight at which most men of God would have been gravely intimidated. After an exchange between the Archbishop Johann Eck and Martin Luther, Martin Luther being overwhelmed by the immensity of what he was doing, challenging the whole tradition and structure of the church... Luther requested and received the night for prayer and consideration. And when he did, here's what he prayed. How frail and sensitive is the flesh of men, and the devil so powerful and active through his apostles, and the wise of the world. O thou my God, my God, help me against the reason and wisdom of all the world. Do this, thou must do it, thou alone. For this cause is not mine, but thine. For myself, I have no business here with these great lords of the world. Indeed, I too desire to enjoy days of peace and quiet and to be undisturbed, but thine, O Lord, is the cause, and it is righteous and of eternal importance. Stand by me, thou faithful, eternal God. I rely on no man. O God, stand by me in the name of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ who shall be my protector and defender, yea, my mighty fortress, through the might and strength of thy Holy Spirit. Again, two days later, on April 18th, came this famous dialogue between the theologian Johann Eck and Martin Luther. Johann Eck said, Martin, how listen to this. How can you assume that you are the only one to understand the sense of Scripture? Would you put your judgment above that of so many famous men and claim that you know more than they all? You have no right to call into question the most holy orthodox faith instituted by Christ, the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed throughout the world by the apostles, sealed by the red blood of the martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils, declined by the, I mean defined by the church in which all our fathers believed until death and gave to us as an inheritance, and which now we are forbidden by the pope and emperor to discuss, lest there be no end of debate. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther replied. Since then, your majesty and your lordship's desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I'm convinced by the scripture in plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And then there Luther took his stand. It was the greatest moment in the history of the modern world, perhaps. How did Luther come to such heroics? Standing alone before the world, risking his life for the sake of God's truth. He knew God's will. He knew through the examination of God's word that the just shall live by faith. He knew that it was God's will for him to go to Worms and declare the truth to the world, regardless of the consequences. Luther exemplified an unrelenting boldness in his faith. And in chapters 21 and 22, we see an incredible example of Paul's unrelenting boldness. In the midst of pressure and certain persecution for his faith, he doesn't know how persecution is going to come about, but he does know that it will come about. And though he's been counseled by many against going to Jerusalem, he knew the Holy Spirit had testified to him that he was to go. But why? Why was he to go? Paul was to go for the proclamation of the gospel among the Jews. You see Paul had a grand vision of God's word being embraced by Jew and Gentile alike. As Dr. David read from Romans chapter 1 verse 16, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek." This is why throughout all of Paul's missionary journeys, every time he went to an, into a new city, where did he go first? He went to the temple to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the promised hope and fulfillment of Messiah with his Jewish people. And then he went on to the Gentiles. This was God's redemptive mission in the world of which Paul had been captivated. He had been captivated by this call to make disciples of all nations, to proclaim and to spread and to share the gospel with all peoples. And so chapter 21 deals, details a few short stops along the route of Paul's final leg in his missionary journey, the third missionary journey, he's heading back to Jerusalem. He, like Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, encounters resistance from God's people. He encounters resistance to what he knows to be God's will for him. In fact, on two different occasions here in chapter 21, we see the believers trying to convince Paul that he ought not to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But you see, for Paul, the call to follow Christ was one of laying down his life. Paul would write to the church of Galatians, Galatians 2.20, Therefore, I've been crucified with Christ, right? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul's life is sold out to following Christ, going where Christ wants him to go, doing what Christ has called him to do. Paul had determined in his mind to walk in obedience to Christ. Some would call this Paul's faith, a radical faith. But Paul saw it as simple obedience. He was convinced of God's leading and calling in his life. And So the first scene that we look at in chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, is the scene of walking by faith, walking by faith. Paul evidences a a walk of faith. It must have been difficult for him to hear the encouragements of his friends, of dear believers, and to say, no, this is what God has called me to do. I'm going to pursue it, and I'm going to walk in it. Well, there are kind of two questions that I I want us to wrestle with throughout the entirety of of the text this morning. And the first is, does your commitment and faith in Christ resemble that of Paul? As we go through the, the message this morning... Think about that. Does does my commitment and faith in Christ resemble that of Paul? What are the areas where where my, my faith walk with Christ is resemblance of Paul's faith walk with Christ? Another question that we can consider this morning is, how can Paul's unrelenting boldness encourage your pursuit of Christ in the daily context of your life? How can Paul's unrelenting boldness encourage your pursuit of Christ in the daily context, or in the context of your daily life. The first place they land as they're journeying back to Jerusalem is in Tyree. And there it says in verse 4, chapter 21, verse 4, Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. You see that? So he lands in this place. He's got seven-day layover, basically, while they unload and load cargo, change out things on the ship. And he goes and he seeks out a community of believers. Why? Because he wants to encourage them. He wants to to meet them. He wants to, to walk with them a little bit. And as he does and gets to know them, these believers come alongside him, and they began encouraging him not to go, telling him to stay. In fact, the idea is they kept on telling Paul, over and over and over again. They were, they were kind of like a broken record in one sense. They just continued to say, don't go, don't go, don't go. At first glance, we wonder if there's some contradiction here, but there isn't. It says in verse 4 that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go unto Jerusalem, but this means that the Spirit had told them Paul would go through suffering, and naturally, they didn't want Paul to suffer, and so they were encouraging him not to go. Well, we see it again in verses eleven and twelve. In verses eleven and well, in verse eight they had departed. They came to a place called Caesarea, Caesarea. They entered the house of Philip the evangelist, the one that we met back in Acts chapter six, one of the early men, the deacons who were called. And, and Philip, this great godly man, uh, he he now has four daughters. It's twenty years later. They're grown up. They're uh, he tells us that they are uh, their daughters. His daughters are unmarried and they prophesy. Probably they had been also prophesying to Paul about what was coming in Jerusalem. But we read about a man named Agabus who comes down from Judea in verse 10. And verse 11 says, And coming to us, here's what Agabus did, like the prophets of of the Old Testament, like Ezekiel or like Jeremiah. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet in his hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 12 says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Yet this time, Luke and his companions joined in with the believers of Caesarea. But Agabus' prophecy wasn't concerned with telling Paul not to go. It was only concerned with Suffering, saying that suffering was inevitable. In fact, since Paul's conversion, he's known this to be his destiny. Remember, think back to Acts chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, who goes to Paul, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We know the struggle was real for Paul in verse 13. He says, why do you keep saying this? You're breaking my heart. But Paul's response shows an unwavering boldness to follow God's lead. An unwavering boldness to go where God was calling him to go. Paul's courageous faith is even instructive for us today. Look at what he says there in verse 13. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying, wherever God's will is taking me, I'm ready. You know, the reality is that Christians in the Western church don't know the struggle of physical persecution. This is partly because we've grown content to live our lives and give God the leftovers, but it's also because we live in a a free land, a free country where we have religious freedom. So often Christians struggle with being committed to, to the most foundational things, like, being, like gathering for worship or, or being involved in a fellowshipping community with other believers. These, though, ought to be the basics of Christian living. For most of us, the problem isn't with knowing God's will. For most of us, the problem is with obeying God's will. When God calls us to give sacrificially... Are to preach, or to go on a mission trip, or to do volunteer work with, with the sick or with the homeless. It's not enough just to know that God is calling us, to know God's will, but we, we must do it. As, as James says in James chapter 1, verse 23, For if anyone is a, a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he looks like. So in verse 22 of James chapter 1, James exhorts the believers. He says, let us not merely be hearers, but let us also be doers of the word. See, knowing God's will isn't a mystery. The difficulty that Christians experience is walking in obedience to God's will. Let me ask you, is there a particular area in your life where you know God is calling you to relinquish control. Or maybe there's a specific thing that you've sensed perhaps multiple times to submit to God in, and you have refused to, or even are continuing to refuse to. Look at this. The boldness that Paul demonstrates is a deep trust in God's plan. That's Paul's boldness, a deep trust in God's plan. Boldness means speaking and living God's truth so that we lovingly tell the good news of Jesus Christ in our daily contexts. God's Word has much to say about the culture that we live in, about the hot-button topics that we even encounter today, from, from marriage to the sanctity of life to gender issues. When We, we are all image-bearers of Christ to ethics, to morality, all of these things. This was a driving passion for Paul. And it ought to be for us to proclaim the message of the gospel. This is why Paul says, no, I've got to go to Jerusalem. Paul exhibits a courageous faith. Paul exhibits a perseverance. Paul exhibits an unwavering boldness. The second scene that we see this morning is a warm embrace spoiled by rumors. I know it doesn't really uh, roll off the tongue, but this is what happens in the next section. In verse 21, 17, as Paul arrives there, this is the section that we read, as Paul arrives in Jerusalem uh, with the others who are with him, they go to the church and they're greeted by the elders. And though Luke doesn't record it, it was Paul's joy to deliver the offering that he was bringing from the Gentile churches to the believers in Jerusalem. So when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he shares with the elders about all that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. We see that in verse 19. And they rejoiced when they heard it. In fact, Paul demonstrates humility once again by attributing all all of his success, all of the success of the mission to what God had done. The challenge that we should see, even, church, is that humility should mark the lives of God's servants. There's no greater path to humility than to confessing that any good we do is because of God's initiative to bless the labor of our hands. When we give praise and worship to God, or we give praise and worship to God, when we recognize and confess God's role in our fruit-bearing ministry, in any fruit-bearing ministry that we enjoy. Well, unfortunately, the conversation quickly took a drastic turn for Paul and the elders. On the one hand, Paul would have been elated to hear that thousands of Jews had now believed. His aim all along has been unity in Christ's church, unity between Jew and Gentile, the very thing that Christ's sacrificial death had accomplished. Peace with God between man which brings about peace among and unity among the nations. At this juncture, one thing we should note is that following God's way doesn't mean we're exempt from hardships or sufferings. Following God's way doesn't mean that we're exempt from hardships or sufferings. The rumor mill was in full effect. And in verses. 20, the, kind of the last half of verse 20 through verse 24, we see the rumors that were happening, or that were they're flying around or circulating around the church uh, about Paul. First, they were zealous for the law, and so in verse 21 it says, they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them, not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. The question I have is, James is saying this as the leader of the church, who is the one saying this? Why hasn't anything been confronted within the new church, within these new believers? Why have these rumors been allowed to circulate? And so the elders advise Paul on how to correct the lies that have spread among the church in Jerusalem. Verse 26 says, Then Paul took the men... The next day, these four men, he purified himself along with them. He paid for their, uh, their purification, and he, brought, he paid for all of it to happen, for all of their purification, for their vows, uh, and he, he went with them into the temple. But several scholars think that Paul sinned by following this advice in verse 26. And Paul, but Paul's mindset all along was to be all things to all people so that he might win some to Christ. In fact, to give you an understanding of Paul's mindset, think about 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, and hear what Paul writes to the church of Corinth. To the Jew I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not, as, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside of the law, Paul says, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that all by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now we know this wasn't these rumors weren't true about Paul. I mean in fact on the second missionary journey as Paul goes through Cyprus, he finds a young man, Timothy, and he has Timothy circumcised because Timothy's mother was a Jew and his father was a Greek. He did this, why? So that he could minister to the Jews as they went through the different towns. And so these were certainly lies. But it's, it's here that we learn what it means to magnify Christ above self for Paul. It's difficult to walk back such damage that's done to one's character through Rumors. It reminds me of Proverbs 18.8. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. We have to learn that our words are significant, that our words matter. What we say matters. In an eastern land, a, a woman repeated a bit of gossip about a neighbor. And within, within a short time, the whole town knew the story. The slandered person was deeply hurt and most unhappy. But then the lady responsible for spreading the rumor learned that it wasn't completely true. So she went to the wise old sage in the city to find out what she could do to repair the damage. And after listening to her problem, he said, "'Go to the marketplace, purchase a chicken, and have it killed. "'Then on your way home, pluck its feathers one by one "'and drop it along the path.' those surprised by this unusual advice the woman did as she was told the next day she informed the man that she had what she, she next day she informed the man that she had done as instructed he said to her now go and collect all those feathers and bring them back to me the lady followed the same path but to her dismay the wind had blown all the feathers away after searching all day long she returned with only two or three in her hand you see said the wise old man it's easy to drop them but it's impossible to bring them all back. Likewise, it doesn't take much to spread a false rumor, but you can never completely undo the wrong. Whether it be rumors or gossip, we should remember Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up As fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, we don't speak neutrally. Every word carries weight. Sometimes we speak in code, or sometimes we speak with double entendre, sometimes we speak with a a malicious intent. But really, what we're doing is we're hurting others with our words. This has the complete opposite effect of Christ's intent through his sacrificial death, the unity of the body of Christ. And instead what happens is it creates division like it does here in the early church in Jerusalem. My, My desire for us as a congregation for Crosspoint is that we would be a gathering of believers who foster unity and not division through what we say. That we would be a a congregation, a a group of believers, a community of faith that submits to the Holy Spirit to foster within our community a sense of, of unity and peace and not a sense of disunity, which brings about kind of a threatening environment. But that we would have a peaceable and encouraging environment within and among the body of Christ. Verses 27 through 36 tells us that when the seven days of purification were almost completed, that the Jews from Asia stirred up the crowd, declaring that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple, and so they carried him out of the temple. And according to verse 31, it says they were seeking to kill him. Paul received a beating so severe that he could barely walk. And had it not been for the soldiers and the centurions... He would have been beaten to death. And so after he was arrested, he had to be carried up the steps. And then the tribune permitted him to speak to the Jews who had just beaten him. So I want you to get the scene. All these Jews are gathered around and he's carried up the steps to be brought into the barracks. And he pauses there at the top after he's been carried up the steps. And he asks the tribune, can I address the crowd? And so after some dialogue, they permitted him to address the crowd. But what Paul did next can only be explained by the Holy Spirit's presence in his life. Instead of cursing his persecutors, he stands before them and he gives a defense for the hope of the gospel. Only the Spirit of God can enable such a response of love and forgiveness to look at those who wanted to harm you and to have compassion on them. To look at those who wanted to kill you and to love them. To love them enough to forgive and to share the love of Christ with them. And in, verses, and in chapter 22, verses 1 through 21, Paul then begins to recount the Damascus Road conversion to the crowd. And they were all tuned in. he says to them, I was, I was zealous like you for God. I was persecuting the way, but then Jesus confronted me in my sin and I repented and was baptized into Jesus and became a follower of the way. He tells him, he he changed me and he commissioned me to be a witness for him to everyone, everywhere. And he had them all up until verse 21. And he said to me, go for I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. And when he said that, he lost the crowd. And we'll pick that up next week. But I want us to see this morning that Paul's persecution wasn't in vain. Paul had a deep trust in God's sovereign plan. And he knew that in the midst of his suffering for Christ, God was doing something much bigger. He knew that God's plan is infinitely higher than ours. And that God's way is vastly more comprehensive than we can begin to understand. So Paul doesn't waste his suffering. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, Christian, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, when you're persecuted for your faith, let us learn the lesson that Paul teaches us. Let us learn not to despise our persecutors, but learn to love them enough to share the gospel and trust God enough to be bold for Christ in the midst of suffering. And let us remember that God is in control It was C.H. Spurgeon, the great preacher, who said, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to be more more earnestly contend. Than, to, than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne, for it is God upon the throne whom we trust. When we're bold for Christ, we can expect persecution, we can expect suffering. The question we must wrestle with deep down is, do we believe God's word enough to love people enough to tell them that apart from Christ, there is only eternal condemnation? The question that we must wrestle with deep down is, do we, love, do we believe God's word enough to love people enough to tell them that apart from Christ, there is only eternal condemnation? Eternity is a long time. Will we take the risk of suffering now so that they don't suffer for eternity? When Lou Little was a football coach at Georgetown University, he had on his squad a player of average ability who rarely got into the game. But Coach Little was fond of him, and he especially liked the way that he walked arm-in-arm with his father on campus. One day shortly before the big game with Fordham, the boy's mother called with the news that his father had died that morning from a heart attack. So the student went home with a heavy heart, but was back three days later. Coach, he pleaded, will you start me in the game against Fordham? I think it's what my father would have most liked for me. After a moment's hesitation, Little said, OK, but only for a play or two. True to his word, he put the boy in, but he never took him out of the game. For 60 action packed minutes, That inspired young man ran and blocked like an All-American. After the game, the coach praised him. Son, you've never played like that before. What got into you? He said, remember how my father and I used to go arm in arm? Well, he was totally blind, and today was the first time he ever saw me play. His desire to please someone he loved, someone not visibly present, made all the difference for this boy. You know, Hebrews talks about a great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. But the one that we run the race for, that one is Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising sin or despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Let us therefore look to this one. Paul's desire was to please God above all else. Was to walk by faith. Was to persevere in faith. No matter what was prophesied about what would come. His desire was to proclaim the gospel and share the hope of the gospel with all those that he came to. Paul's desire was to make Christ known and was to be found faithful. He had an unrelenting boldness. Well, let me ask you this morning, how is God calling you to persevere? How is is God calling you to be bold for Christ? Is it perseverance through an unbelieving spouse Perseverance through continuing to model Christ for wayward children. Perseverance through a difficult work environment. How is God calling you to be bold for Christ? Is it through being faithful to speak to the hot button issues of the day when the discussions happen within the office and you say, you know, God's word has something to say about that. God's word has a design. But the importance of all of that, first and foremost, is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the foundation of where it begins. And that is what Paul was so passionate about telling others about, a relationship with Jesus Christ. As we close this morning, does your commitment and faith in Christ resemble that of Paul? How can Paul's unrelenting boldness encourage your pursuit of Christ in the daily context of your life? I pray that we'll consider that this morning as we meditate and chew on God's Word and go back and read through God's Word this week and seek to apply it to our life. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we have worshipped you through song, and through your word this morning, I pray that you would teach us more about being faithful. And Father, the issue isn't often knowing your will, but being obedient to walk in your will. So would you, would you equip us and empower us to walk by your spirit, to be, to be faithful, to walk in obedience to your will? And Lord, help us to model this life of humility like Paul does a humility that wants to turn and give you glory for everything and anything good that happens in our life. Now, Lord, as we, um, as we stand together to worship you, even to prepare our hearts for partaking and continuing to worship, partaking at the Lord's table, uh, would, you, would you work in our hearts and lives and direct our thoughts, Lord? Increase our love for you and our desire to walk in obedience our desire for boldness. Let us be unrelentingly bold like Paul. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?